Greetings to anyone still listening to this podcast. We haven't done one of these for a while, recorded one of these for a while. Uh, we're going to try to squeeze one in during this <clears throat> this busy time of year, um, and we'll be talking about time and seasons here uh, in particular. Uh, let the, the liturgical calendar folks beat up Presbyterians, and maybe Presbyterians can throw a few punches back about Advent and Christmas and when you sing what. But before we get there, we could talk about, and the we in this case, of course, is the regular panelists, uh, Corey Moss, who teaches history here at Hillsdale College, Miles Smith, who also teaches history here at Hillsdale College, and then there's I, D.G. Hart, who teaches history at Hillsdale College. Um, I'm going to go around the horn and see how your semester is finishing up. This is the middle, well, toward the end of finals week here at Hillsdale. And um, in some ways, it's the worst, in contrast to the seasonal song, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the worst (laughs) time of the year because grading is the the thing that I find least um, appealing about teaching. But I was going to ask, though, Anything in particular you you learned covered this semester that was a surprise and um, and maybe something that would bear on the topic of confessional Protestantism. I I I myself was struck yet once again um, teaching Western heritage and Constantine the Great and the way that Christians made peace with the empire in the fourth century and beyond, um, and then teaching colonial America, coming across a book about imperial Protestantism in the British Empire, uh, which extends to religious life in the colonies, um, how much the empire still resonates in a way with our respective traditions and histories. And, 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 and one one easy example of that is the Nicene Creed. I mean, if if you don't have Constantine, do you have Nicaea? Do you have then something like a touchstone of orthodoxy, which Nicaea I think is for most orthodox theologians, no matter what their denomination or Protestant, Orthodox, Roman Catholic and we, I think we sort of just take that for granted. But boy, it seems like that's a big deal that the um, the way in which the empire affected Christianity. And just one more wrinkle of that: I, there's a great BBC show called In Our Time. Um, I think you guys are familiar with that. But they did an episode on Constantine the Great. Oh, it's probably a couple of years now. And when I re-listened to that this summer in preparation for Heritage and also while traveling, I just couldn't help but think about the way that Christians embrace Constantine being comparable to the way Protestants in the United States embrace Donald Trump. Hmm. Because I, I'm not I'm not convinced yet that Constantine was a great Christian. He may important emperor, all sorts of reasons for thinking he's a great figure. And notable, but there's a lot. Of, I, I think actually there's more dark stuff on in Constantine's past than there is in in Trump's, and yet, you know, one one of the 
one of the texts that we assign uh, in heritage is this fawning praise for Constantine from the, the bishop Eusebius. Um, so I was just really struck by that. Had to think a lot about empire in uh, colonial America, which was useful. Any other takers on this question of the semester and what you taught? Yeah, I think I learned a good bit about, um, and this will be something that I think conservative and progressive Christians won't want to hear in some ways, is that um, I I think that the way that Christians litigate the Christian past in the United States is so far afield from what the actual record shows. And I'm particularly thinking of this idea that you see, and you see it a lot among conservative Christians, especially sort of... um, culture warrior types who were always saying, you know, like if people just listen to their pastors and just listen to the, you know, if we, if they just obeyed. Um, and what I found, especially reading in the era from about 1800 to 1850 is that actually the United States in the 20th century. And I think you could argue in the 20th (laughs) century, Christianity is much more clericalist now Mm. than it was then uh, in the 19th century, especially the treatment of, of pastors or ministers or whatever you want to call it. Um, you have all these records of guys literally getting beat up. You know, they're, they're preaching and either the congregation beats them up or, you know, people from outside the congregation who are like, it's just, I mean, there's so much violence in, in huh. religion in the early Republic. And, and that we've kind of assumed there were these good old days when everybody you know, did exactly what they were told to, and they listened to the pastor, and that it was it was sort of this kind of paradise that's been painted. And you, you find out that wasn't that wasn't the case at all. In fact, there's these records, and uh, I saw one from a from a, a I guess it's a Dutch Reformed church that uh, basically there was elders and deacons sat on the front row in order to go haul the pastor down in case he preached something that wasn't square <laughs> with either them. Or I guess it would be the Heidelberg Confession. I don't know enough about Dutch Christian. I don't know about Holland. Period. Um, Swamp Scotland, as it was affectionately called in South Carolina. Um, but th- this is this is just something that's in the ether. Is there's a lot of violence, and the idea that we have that there was sort of a peaceable Christian milieu where everyone sort of um, followed pastors and followed church leadership is massively overstated. Um, And especially if you read the records of any place outside of a city between about 1800 and 1830, some some cases into the 1850s, if you're talking about a place like Texas or Missouri um, or even California or or a place like that. So uh, I've been actually, it's been fascinating for me because I think I have had that assumption that things were relatively peaceable and, you know, um, you know, people just dressed in black and saying the old rugged cross or shall we gather at the river and, you know, some, some, something like that. And it was, a, it was a lot more, it wasn't, there was no golden age. So. Well, what, what that was true, even in the case of the pilgrims in Plymouth plantation, I mean, they didn't really want ministers. They couldn't find them because they were so sort of anti-establishment, but, they had lots of innings with particular ministers who tried to come around. And so even venerable 
pilgrims from whom we get Thanksgiving, et cetera. Even the authority loving pilgrims, right? Right. Yeah. Um, Dr. Moss, did you um, yeah, I, cover anything? Yeah, I covered tons of interesting stuff. I mean, things, things that jumped out at me this semester. I, I mentioned this. Uh, I, think, I think you were there, Daryl, at our, our little book club uh, a week or two ago. Um, and this is going to be sort of deep in the weeds for, for those who are not regularly reading John of Salisbury's Polycraticus, which is most of us. But it's a, it's, it's a medieval political treatise that is, is sort of drafted right before Aristotelian philosophy is kind of reintroduced to the West in a serious way. Um, and one of the things that struck me, it, it jumped out at me the way it had never done before, is that he, he talks about, you know, in effect, had, had there been, it's just a passing comment, but had there been no fall into sin, he says that you know, kingdoms would be friendly and peaceful, or perhaps, which is even more credible, there would be no kingdoms at all. Hmm. And, and we sometimes associate this idea with, with Augustine and, and the, the magisterial Protestant tradition, the idea that, that politics, earthly politics, is a result of the fall and a remedy for some of the, the, the chaos uh, that sin introduces into the world. Um, but of course, there's this long tradition of, of an Aristotelian idea that no politics is natural. Man is by his very nature a political animal. And so there would have been some kind of politics, not necessarily punitive or coercive politics, but some sort of politics um, before the fall. And so it just jumped out at me that, that here is this um, you know, high medieval theologian who is, is still entertaining the idea that no, maybe, maybe no fall, no, no kingdoms, no politics as we know it. Um, so that was just one of the things that I, I, I underlined it. I've been using this book for 10 years now and I had never mm. underlined mm. that. Like I said, it had never jumped out at me. So it's, 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 it's one of the things I want to come back to and investigate mm. a bit more. All right. So uh, let's, turn to today's topic, which is the uh, seasonal time of the year. Um, and I made up a list of uh, the seasons here. So we just finished Thanksgiving. I mean, we're, that's two weeks away, but um, so that Not liturgical season, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> how about a national liturgical? Then we have Advent. We're in Advent seeing lots of, uh, posts online about Advent. Then Christmas is coming. Uh, it's also the end of the year. I've already mentioned it's the end of the semester uh, for anyone in who's teaching, even before or after the the uh, undergraduate days. Uh, this is this is a time of the year when things are wrapping up. So we have finals, we have grading, and. Um, and then we also have in sports, we have the NCAA Division I football playoffs coming. I guess the, uh, the teams are set for the final four. Um, and it didn't help, uh, Herschel Walker at all. <laughs> uh, um, and then we also have the beginning here at Hillsdale, Division II basketball. We have the beginning right. of the, 
the uh, conference season here, as it, as of today's recording, Hillsdale College is ranked six in one poll, seventh in an, in another poll, and they're so far they're undefeated. Um, so for Presbyterian, this is great because you can't keep track of all the these different times. So what's the point of even trying to make sense of Advent or something? Um, they're just all these comings and goings of times of life, seasons in the year, professionally, et cetera, that it's really, I mean, how could you possibly isolate certain four weeks be running up to Christmas and, and, and keep them somehow different? It, it just seems like it's the busiest time of the year. So what do you guys think? Does it, is Advent a big deal in, in your, um, parishes or, or congregations i think maybe the flip side of it is to to maybe ask how do you do something 52 times a year and have it be special too um you know to sort of to sort of i i think there's kind of different ways of looking at advent i i don't think that advent is necessarily um something that obliterates say Sunday worship. Um, I, I don't think the season, um, is it's not even that I think difficult to keep up with. I, I, I think it, some of it's, some of it is, is, is it's in the prayer book. And in as much as you use the prayer book every Sunday, it's just, as kind of a, almost a part of your Sunday life. I think that's how, I've, I've related to Advent is it is, it's a part of Sunday life and it's a, it's a season, but I've never, I guess I've never sensed that it is somehow onerous um, that maybe that's not, maybe that's not a defense of it, but um, yeah, I, I, I guess I've never sensed that it was, something weighty and maybe that's maybe that's a criticism of it that it's actually not weighty enough um and i think a lot of the people who would want to lean into the more penitential aspects of advent would make that argument yeah it's it's a pretty big deal in in lutheran circles um so just for example i I mentioned before that in in my congregation currently we have uh you know two sunday services um, and then we have a midweek Wednesday evening service, but usually the the midweek Wednesday service is just a repeat of the Sunday morning services for those who can't make it on Sunday morning. Um, but during the season of Advent, um, we we don't do a divine service with communion. Uh, we do evening prayer, so a, a, a different service, one of the, mm. the, the so-called daily offices, um, and we have different readings. So it's, 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 um, you all do the litany in Advent? Uh, we do. Yeah. Um, and, and because, because most liturgical churches are also pericopal churches, meaning that the readings on any given Sunday are kind of set, um, Advent as, as well as Lent, those midweek services, um, they have appointed readings, but but more often what you have is a kind of thematic. So we've got four weeks. Let's let's pick a theme and do four sermons on that theme. Or you know, P 
pick a you know, short New Testament book and walk through it. Um, so it's, it's an opportunity for those of us who are usually tied to a pericable system to do something a little more topical. Um, but then, then, of course, the big deal is that it's, it's you know, preparatory, preparatory for Christmas. Um, and so kind of like Lent is preparatory for Easter, um, we, we do, to a certain extent, uh, as, as Miles said, lean into the, the penitential nature of it. Uh, we are you know, preparing for the advent of, of Christ. So there's a, a certain penitential as well as celebratory aspect to it. And how clear do you think um, it is in the minds of members that they're thinking of two advents? They're thinking of the second advent as much as the first or mainly it's leading up to baby Jesus, which which seems to undercut Jesus coming back. Jesus and John Wayne, like, I mean, he's going to, he's going to (laughs) kick, kick butt. Um, And how does that play? And and especially Corey, I mean, since you have children, uh, neither Miles nor I do. So it's, I mean, I wonder how this plays goes over what your kids are taking in with this. Not, not to say that I'm worried that they're, this is harming them. I'm just really wondering what they're, what they're learning. Yeah. No, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, one of the things that I notice in in the preaching is that the the first and second advent are very consistently kind of tied together. Hmm. Um, so, you know, pretty consistent reminders that you know, in the liturgical calendar, this is preparatory for the first coming of Christ, but it also puts us in mind of the second coming. And, you know, just as John the Baptist is, telling us to, to, to make straight the way um, that that's something that we're still doing because Christ is, is coming again. Um, and as it, as it happens, we, we've, we've got, we've got a guest preacher for, for Advent, uh, a retired pastor in the congregation hmm. who is preaching on Wednesdays. Um, and he's doing a very nice series on, I don't know if you had put it this way, but I would call it, you know, on sanctification. Um so, you know, Christ's first coming, uh, leading to his crucifixion and resurrection for our justification um, in this in-between time awaiting the, the second advent, you know, how, how do we live um, as, as those baptized into Christ? Hmm. So I think, yeah, I, I mean, I certainly don't want to speak for every LCMS congregation across the United States of America, but um, I, I think our guys have been doing it really well. To, to answer your question, though, how much of my kids uh, I mean, do they, up on do, any of this? I have no idea. <laughs> do they enjoy Advent? I mean, I I can imagine, like, more than imagine. I know we had Wednesday night services growing up. Um, and that when in an age before VCRs, cable streaming, of course, um, that that cut into some serious primetime television shows. <laughs> um, so I didn't necessarily care for that. Yeah. Um, and your kids don't have cable. Um, you, you can't get it in the county. I, I'm kidding. But <laughs> um, no, that's, that's, that's true, though. So I mean, um, how no, much our, our kids to- love it. Um, hmm. Not not because my kids are super pious, but 
you know, in part that, you know, we don't have a TV, so they're not missing anything on TV. If they were home, they'd probably be doing homework. Um, and since they're homeschooled and therefore entirely unsocialized, um, you know, this is one, this is one more hour a week when they get to see their friends. Um, and we're, we, we, we have a, we have the traditional Advent soup supper ahead of service. So that, that uh-huh. brings people in. And so, yeah, so they, they've got time to hang out with their friends and, and the boys really enjoy being involved as, you know, crucifer or acolyte or torchbearer um, or bell ringer or, you know, whatever the case might be They're they're, they're pretty, pretty nerdy that way. So, so and they, they enjoy it. Yeah. The meal is a potluck uh no it's um sort of different groups in the church the sunday school families or the board of elders are in charge of whipping up five pots of of soup and bringing in desserts and um and for our younger kids it means they get to stay up past their bedtime so that's a bonus too and is there any alcohol at those dinners there is no alcohol at these dinners Yeah, maybe if we have the dinner after service. Right. <laughs> no, I I did speak at a Lutheran church in uh, Fort Wayne for Reformation Day a couple yeah. of years ago, and uh, and there was a reception afterwards, and they had, but this was Reformation Day, so they had these German sure. beers that, uh, and I don't know how much, you know, beer or any kind of alcoholic beverage is part of the the. Uh, socializing at the church um, yeah no this is a good question so the um i mean an oktoberfest is a pretty standard you know it's not exactly a day on the liturgical calendar but an mm. awful lot of congregations will have some sort of oktoberfest um and they will have beer when i was a kid and i think this this was way more typical in the old days than it is now um you know churches always had the church basement and that's where the 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 kitchen was for the ladies to do potlucks and funeral luncheons and whatnot but it was also where in the really old days you know there would be a bowling alley there and a lot of (laughs) things and the guys would bowl and drink beer and then a little bit later it'd be play cards and drink beer and um unfortunately that's gone away um you know that that this is free, free flowing, and have to get to the Anglicans here in a second. But the, one of the fundamentalist magazines from the 1920s, I remember a graphic, a cartoon of some kind or an infograph, saying that you could spot a liberal church if they had a bowling alley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so what are the Anglicans up to, Miles? Yeah, well, I think I think I mean a lot of it maps on it similar to what Corey said. I think that probably, um, and maybe th- this is this is maybe to your point, Daryl. This would be a maybe a criticism of someone looked. I think that there's a lot of uh, Corey said it. I think well, there's a lot of kind of socializing that goes on um, around Advent, and. I don't think anything any of that's bad. I think in a lot of Anglican circles, since there's so very few, I'll call them um, kind of native Anglicans, right? People who were born into it. I think a lot of Adventide um, is heavily geared towards kind of doing a lot of the kind of, I'll call it trad stuff, whereby, hey, we're 
no longer these kind of isolated individualistic evangelicals. We're doing community and we're doing community with a liturgy and with history. And so I think it kind of doubles a little bit as like a, a sort of supercharged liturgical homeschool curriculum. Um, I think I, I, and that's not yeah. a criticism, but I think it happens. Right. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, um, I don't have children, um, but I think there's a lot of kind of communitarian stuff that happens with Advent that doesn't necessarily talk about. Like, I don't know if 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 you could talk to a lot of people in the pews who would think about the second coming of Christ. Mm. Um, I, Corey said it right, well, and I think that I've seen almost universally rectors uh, give a good chunk of their sermons during Advent to recognizing to foreshadowing the second coming. I think that's, that's something that faithful rectors do pretty regularly. Um, also the hymnody of Advent tends to have a lot of, uh, of, of stuff about the second coming in it. Um, and, uh, Anglican hymnody. And I, I, I would assume Lutheran hymnody, uh, too, um, has a lot of the second coming in Advent. And there's a pretty mm. strict line, at least in our hymnal, between Advent and Christmas when it comes to hymnody. Um, Christmas hymns are not Advent hymns. Um, And, and the tone's very different. Um, And so I I think Advent typically is kind of almost, it does at least in a liturgical context tend to be kind of this brooding foreshadowing, but whether that connects to actually what's going on on the ground um, with all, you know, families coming to services and getting kids to services I don't know, um, mainly because I don't think that there's a long enough kind of most people in Anglican churches or at least conservative Anglican churches today. There's not a long enough history of doing it. Um, you could see that in the old Episcopal church, um, maybe, but uh, the, the last few conservative churches that there are, but I, I just don't know. Uh, so it's a good question. I mean, I think that's if, if someone did want to criticize Advent, it would be like, well, it, this is nice, and this is something that seems to be not, something that's not onerous. But how much is the theolo- theology of it translating into the the average um, parishioner compared to, say, the sociology of Advent? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, when I've seen um, even, I think my parents' church. My parents have been deceased now for <clears throat> a dozen years or so. Um, but uh, I think in the 90s, they started to dabble with Advent. This was a fundamentalist Baptist church connected back in the day with Philadelphia College of Bible. Now, oh, what's it called? Um, Karen. Karen, right. Karen yeah. University. Um, and so this was, this is low church of low church. Um, and I think people just thought it was kind of, neat kind of cool it was a great way to kind of extend the christmas season and uh you know get ready for it but yay we've got we've got decorations around (laughs) at home now we can have them at church um it's a it's a peculiar thing it seems to me i mean and even the way that we seem to reserve the word coming for the second advent and we tend to think of the talk about 
first coming of Christ as the advent or as advent and sort of, I don't know, that seems to be a common usage among certain kinds of Protestants anyway, that you don't hear as much about the second advent as you do about the second coming of Christ. But let me stop here briefly and uh, do a, a an advertisement for their show, a sponsor. Um, based on an award-winning play, The Audience, by showrunner Peter Morgan, this lavish Netflix original drama, The Crown, chronicles the life of Queen Elizabeth from the 1940s to modern times. The series begins with an inside look at the early reign of the queen who ascended the throne at the age of 25 after the death of her father, King George VI. As the decades pass, personal intrigues, romances, and political rivalries are revealed that played a big role in events that shaped the later years of the 20th century. So go out and see the fifth season of The Crown. And if you haven't seen the first four seasons see those as well. The fifth season really is, I think, pretty remarkable. Um, and that's more of a plug for the crown than it is a sponsor of this um, <laughs> podcast. But so you brought up there, um, Miles, and Corey was nodding, um, at least if not also um, a hawing, that um, there's a distinction in the hymnal between Advent and Christmas. So, are, is there like a hymn, Christmas hymn, Christmas carol, Gestapo, in your <laughs> congregations that you a pastor or a worship committee gets in trouble if they, or they just know they'd never do it. Uh, yeah, I, again, sort of depends on the congregation, but yeah, in, in most of the congregations I've been in, it's just understood right. that. You've got four weeks to sing Advent hymns, and then you've got two weeks to sing Christmas hymns. Um, but this is this is something that's always struck me, and I'm, I'm glad that that Miles mentioned the hymnody. Um, you know, one of the one of the reasons I think my kids enjoy Advent is just because there are there are so many good Advent hymns, and you only get to sing them for these for the most part, these four weeks of the year. I mean, occasionally one will get thrown in when we're coming to the last Sunday of the church year or something like that, the second Advent. Um, and it's always struck me that, you know, Christmas hymns, you, you sing them for two weeks of the year, Advent hymns, maybe four weeks of the year. And yet these are some of the the, the better known hymns. I mean, my, my kids remember them the way they don't necessarily remember hymns that we could, in theory, sing 52 weeks out of the year. Um, so I think there is a, a little bit of, of excitement that, Hey, we get to sing these hymns now that we haven't sung for a year and, and they're familiar to us. Yeah. I, I think that it's probably understood, um, in our context as well. I think there, you know, uh, whether there's a Gestapo, Daryl, that's a good question. I, I think there are, there are the kind of, you know, sticklers in every parish and congregation, I'm sure who, you know, if you sang, um, o Come, O Come, Emmanuel, right? Like that's an Advent hymn, but it's also kind of a Christmas hymn, you know, so there's, there's some bleed. Um, but I think for the most part, it's pretty clear. Um, yeah, I mean, I've never heard in an Anglican church, O Come, All Ye Faithful, sung during Advent. I've universally heard it sung Christmas one. Um, yeah. It's just kind of one of those things that's like, this is Christmas, not Advent. 
Um, and a lot of it is, it's not just kind of the, the lyrics, but I think it's also the tone of, of the, you know, the musical settings for, um, you know, uh, Oh, come, Oh, come, uh, um, Emmanuel is an Advent hymn. Um, and it's like, it's low slung, right? It's almost, it's, it's moody. Can I say that? It's kind of brooding. Whereas Christmas hymns aren't, they're celebratory. So, um, I think the hymnody is pretty, the, the delineation has been pretty clear in every Anglican parish I've been in. So, uh, and I, w- I would make another distinction um, to the sort of inside the church, outside the church distinction, which is maybe, at least for some Presbyterians and Reformed, a- a- analogous to uh, you know, sort of visual representations of, of Jesus. You know, we, we don't do that in the church, but we're not necessarily opposed to having a children's Bible that, that might have pictures. Um, so, for example, Right now, even as we're speaking, I, I think my kids are, are singing Christmas carols at a, at a local nursing home. And I'll ask them when I get home, but I'm pretty sure they're not just sticking to, to Advent. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're probably doing some actual Christmas tunes, um, which, yeah, we, we don't typically do in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. But when we're doing stuff outside of the church, nobody, nobody squawks. Well, it, it is it is what you say about the um the popularity of these hymns but um whether advent or christmas but they're also theologically oftentimes much better because they're they're actually singing about christ and i mean sometimes if you're trying to sing about the christian life somehow or or even sanctification or something. Um, the, 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 the hymnist may not get it quite right or something, but, um, and it's, you can certainly blow the incarnation. And, um, so it's easy to f- fall off, off the, the rails there. But, um, but it, I, I think I may have brought this up in a, in an earlier, uh, recording, but this summer Ann and I were in Providence, and we went to the um, oldest Baptist church in the United States, um, where you know Roger Williams was uh, minister at one point somewhere way back in the seventeenth century, and it's a glorious facility, uh, just a classic colonial what you'd what you'd see on a postcard. Um, so we thought we'd go some somewhere kind of museum like and see what it looked like and also then worship with the folks but this was a after a fairly hot week um so the minister middle-aged well younger woman but not maybe 30s um decided to have the service outside on the on the lawn which was very pleasant had a nice view of part of the city but then it was just turned out to be a hymn sing she she read a quote from Beekner about something I don't think having to do with memory and then she just let people select hymns and there was a electric keyboard electronic keyboard there and somebody playing that and I would say 50% of the songs were um, people chose were either Advent or Christmas in the summertime yeah wow and but it's just like these are these are important hymns these are hymns that are i mean there's also there's also a lot of memory 
that goes with these and sure family times times of the year christmas season is something that stands out in a lot of kids minds so you're going back to those associations but you know you sing some of those wesley hymns some of those watts hymns um they're they're pretty good and i'm not a big fan sometimes of wesley watts so you know, I, I, my point, and I've, I'm writing about this in the next issue of the Nicotine Theological Journal, um, that if, and I don't really believe this, that people learn more theology from the hymnal than they do from the catechism. I actually think it's not, that's not true. But if they did, wouldn't you want to have those songs available all year round as opposed to limiting them to four weeks and two weeks? Um, That's the great thing about being a Presbyterian. You could sing any time of the year, <laughs> especially if the t- you know you're preaching lectio continuo. You're going yeah. through the birth narratives in May. You know you can sing one of yeah, those. Yeah, I, I I think that makes perfect sense if you're doing uh, lectio continuo. Then you, whatever the case, whether you're preaching through a book of scripture or you're following a pericope. You, you want the hymns to match the text and, and the broader theme of the day that the, the texts illuminate. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's a, a great idea if you're doing continuous preaching uh, through the Gospels, through a gospel. Um, but I can't remember how many hymns last, last time we met. I said we've got in our hymnal. Um, if we're going to get through them all, we've kind of got to put each in their place and <laughs> we do it by season. Right. Right. And we just ignore some of them because they're not all great. <laughs> I think that, the, that when I think about, um, I think one, one hymn that's always been really important to me, and it is one that I kind of think to myself about all the time through the year. Um, but it's one that comes up in worship at Christmas time is, Oh, come all you faithful. Huh. Um, and I, th- I, I think I agree with you, Daryl. I think the kind of the, the, the most durable catechesis probably happens through actually confessions and, and stuff like that. But I also think about like, you know, what's something that I think really captured the reality of the Trinity for me. It's not the explanation in the articles or it's not the, it probably wouldn't be the explanation in the the Augsburg Confession or in the Westminster Confession, it's 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 this lyric, right? Like word of the Father now in flesh appearing. Hmm. And I think that I think that that um, funny enough, like when Mormons sing that, they don't sing that lyric. They say "Son of the Father." Hmm. Um, so like that that lyric hmm. is so potently Trinitarian that it's just stuck stuck with me. Um, and funny enough, one of the best versions of it is Josh Groban singing with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. <laughs> uh, who is saying it, how it's supposed to be saying. But I, I, th- I think if, if you if you think about the lyrical content of O Come All Ye Faithful um, and, and you set it in, I think this is where I think there's something really valuable about Christmas. If you set it um, in this service where there is an awareness of what the connection between sort of the buildup to this Advent has been, and then you, you, you complement it with a theologically, I think, rich hymn, there is something that kind of sticks with you. Um, 
do, should that be kind of the sum total of your catechesis about the training? No, no, not at all. But man, it's a really, really potent reinforcement. Um, it's, it's always been for me. Um, mm. So I think there is something about the, the relationship of the calendar to hymnody to catechesis that actually there is payoff there. I don't know if it's, um, I don't know if it, it, if it matches the durability say of, of the written confessions, but it's substantive. I mean, you know, a lot more people can remember word of the father now in flesh appearing, Oh, come let us adore him. than can probably remember, you know, even something like, you know, whichever article explains a given theological truth from any of the great Protestant confessions. All right. Exit question then. Um, <clears throat> so the having four weeks of Advent, is that right? Is it ex- exactly four weeks? Um, uh, yeah. Or is it bleed into depending on, because it's Sunday to Sunday. And if this year, the 25th is a Sunday, but if the 25th were a Wednesday, typically the first at Sunday of Advent is the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Or, or is there a time when the first Sunday of Advent is a week after that Thanksgiving weekend? Anyway, it's roughly four, four <laughs> weeks. Um, is it... We've talked about grading and and the um, and the end of the semester. So how hard is it to actually observe Advent when you have all this other su- stuff going? This is this is one of my arguments for um, Sabbatarianism and for the Presbyterian version of uh, the calendar, which is a weekly Lord's Day. But I can I don't do well, but I can relatively keep Sundays free from grading and all sorts of work um there are other distractions but but to do to devote you know i mean so do 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 lutherans and anglicans then have some sense of well last advent i got like 20 percent of it because there was so much other stuff going on i was able to do it on sundays and maybe i made a couple of those weekly services but it was still just this barrage of other activity or then there was that one year when I did 80%. I mean, I was there pretty much on the page, except for a few days I fell off off the <laughs> wagon. I mean, so, you know, and Lutherans, I would imagine, not to say that Anglic- Anglicans don't believe in vocation, but the doctrine of vocation really does point you in the direction of your weekly professional or business activities, whatever, even in the home are really important. So how do you juggle um, the kind of spiritual emphasis that is there for these seasons in this, in this case, Advent. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it is, it is tricky. Um, I mean, especially, especially being in a, a collegiate context. I mean, if I were, if I were a plumber, these four weeks would be like any other weeks of the year, but now I'm, I'm buried in grading, um, um, and then on top of that, you know, you got to think about getting your Christmas cards out on time. Exactly. Shopping done, um, you know, making the, the, the menu for Christmas dinner and the guest list for people that are coming to Christmas dinner. Um, 
so yeah, it is, it's a little hectic, but, but I think that's, I mean, a, a, a good, a good reason to sort of have on the calendar that, okay, you know what? In addition to Sunday morning, uh, Wednesday night, you just put the grading aside. Don't, don't, don't think about running out one more time to Walmart to, to pick up a last minute gift or whatever. Um, just stop, relax, uh, spend some time with your church family at the, at the soup supper uh, and then worship together and t- take a break from the, the chaos and the commercialization and everything else that comes with the four weeks before Christmas. So Miles, it's, it's, it's hard, but it's good. Okay. Yeah. I think that maps on to, I think that um, to go back to kind of the communitarian thing, I think enough people at, at least in our parish are kind of doing it together that it, it doesn't seem like it's sort of um, a slog. I think it's something that people participate in together. Um, and so that, I mean, I, I don't know if my answer would be really different than, than Corey's. I mean, I, I don't have a family. And so I think as, as, I mean, I actually find the seasons <laughs> uh, both helpful and kind of nice um, because I, I mean, they're pretty easy for me. Um, hmm. uh, and so I, 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 I don't know if they would be onerous if I lived in a different context or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I need to run on to a, another meeting. Um, but uh, to everyone listening, have a, um, a great holiday season, whichever one you're observing. And uh, hope you guys have a good christmas yourselves wherever you find yourselves and we'll try to do one more of these in the um in the new year so everyone uh thanks for listening all right take care Daryl. thanks daryl see you